Welcome to the Gateway.Live podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray that God speaks to you through this message and through his word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in. We're in the second week of this series entitled The Unusual Life. And the, the, the tagline for this series is, the life Jesus died to give you. The Bible calls it the abundant life. Jesus came to bring life and life more abundantly. It's the life he died to give us. But all too often, there are so many Christians who aren't even experiencing the life Jesus died to give them. It doesn't make them bad, but we all need reminders that there is this abundant life Jesus died to give us, and we got to know what it is and what it looks like before we can even live it. So last week, step number one is what we talked about. Step number one of the abundant life is salvation. The, the starting line for the abundant life is the death of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection. But step two, we step into healing. And we're not just talking about physical healing, we're really talking about inner healing, emotional healing. And I, I just want to kind of give you a heads up on this message because it, it is on the heavier side. Uh, and I don't mean theologically, like the last series we were in for a month and a half. I'm talking about, it, it, it's, it's heavy. Uh, I, there may be some tears. And I'm not trying to go for tears, you need to know that. But I've been feeling as I've been praying over this weekend this weekend is not about a message, I promise you that. This weekend is about a moment between some hurting hearts and the divine surgeon who happens to be our savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Luke chapter four, I'm gonna give you the background before I read you this passage because I think Jesus all too often gets this kind of rap that isn't even real, that he's kind of the meek and weak one who just walks around like this all the time. Hello, my name is Yeshua. It's totally not the picture. In the three years where Jesus did ministry on the earth, he had so many drop the mic moments. And I want to read you one of the first ones. Now remember, he's kind of been in prep for 30 years on the earth. All right, growing up. Fully God, fully man though. So he's been growing up, prepping for this three-year run of ministry on the earth before his death. Just before where we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just come out of the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. So powerful time. He comes out full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And then I want to show you what happens when he goes into the temple. And, and some of you might laugh at this, but let's just read it together, right? Luke chapter 4, verse 16. So Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, which literally means as he was known for doing, constantly and consistently. What was he known for doing constantly and consistently? He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. If Jesus was in God's house every weekend, I, I always feel like asking us, then what is our excuse for only being here once a month? That's a whole other message, though. Don't feel convicted, okay? I'm just reading the book as it says. Okay, it's just what it says. And he stood up to read. Verse 17. And Jesus was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So he opens up to Isaiah 62. He finds Isaiah 62, which is a messianic prophecy 
about the coming Messiah who happens to be Jesus, who is reading this in front of everybody, okay? And look what he reads, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And I just wonder if he was like, yeah, me, moi, it's me. Because he, God, has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, Yahweh has sent me, Yeshua, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, which is what we're going to talk about in the next week of this series, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. Jesus goes into the synagogue, reads the scriptures that are pointing to him, drops the mic and kind of looks at everybody and says, Everybody welcome Mr. Rogers to the neighborhood. I am here. It's me. I'm the one. But I don't want you to be laughing so much that you miss what he says. That the Messiah will be sent to heal the brokenhearted. God sent Jesus to heal our broken hearts. Now, what I already know Related to this topic is some of you are already making the case in your heart and in your mind that I'm not talking to you this weekend. Oh, Press, I'm good. Like, I'm not hurt. Like, I got hurt a long time ago, but I'm good now. Like, I'm fine. No problem whatsoever. That's not me. Can I just tell you, if that's, what, if that's the inner monologue you're experiencing right now, it's you. God is talking to you in this message, and you should be taking better notes than anybody. And listen, it doesn't make you bad. It just means you're probably more hurt than you think. Now listen, to put you at ease, let me just make you feel better. Let's take a quick poll. How many of us have ever had our hearts hurt badly? Just put your hand up, look around. So keep your hand up, look around, 360 degrees. Everybody look around. Anybody with their hand down is a bull-faced liar right now. <laughs> because we've all been hurt. And it helps to kind of make light, to kind of lift the heaviness. But it isn't a laughing matter, is it, when our hearts are hurting? And some of us may even be in this room right now with broken hearts. The good news is, no matter who broke your heart and no matter how they did it, the Bible says one of the biggest reasons God sent his son was to do something about your broken heart. So, in your notes that you received when you came in, there are three points in this message. I'm not going to get to point number three. We're not even going to need it. You can study it this week. There's scripture in there. But I want to really cover the, the first two points of this message. And point number one, we really need to talk about the fact that a hurt heart has symptoms. So that if you're here and you're going, no, man, I'm, I'm not hurt, I'm good. Let's talk about some of the symptoms of a hurt heart so that we can really be truthful about whether or not we actually qualify as candidates for spiritual surgery in the heart, okay? Now, here's the burden I felt, because as the Lord was really giving me a burden for this message, it started to become really obvious the work he wanted to do this weekend, and I, I said to the Lord, I, I am not qualified to preach this message. Like, this is, this is big boy stuff. This is, I can't do this. And here's what I felt like the Lord said, Preston, you're not the doctor, you're just the nurse. I just need you to sit in the waiting room and keep my patients from running out. 
I'm going to do the surgical procedure. I just want you to help them prepare for me to do a lasting work deep in their hearts. So in this first point, I just want to give you a couple of the symptoms, just really quickly, of a hurting heart. All right? Now, you need to know, as before we go into these symptoms, you need to know this. I am surrounded by liars. Everywhere I go, in this church especially, I'm surrounded by liars. I myself happen to be, from time to time, a liar. Now hear me, I'm not saying I'm surrounded by bad people. What I'm saying is I'm surrounded by good liars. And here's how you know a good liar. When every time you ask them, hey man, how you doing? Every time they answer, go on, I'm doing awesome. No, they're not. Not always. They're lying. We've become really good at hiding our hurt. Here's the problem. When you hide your hurt in the house of the Lord, you are keeping your hurt from the surgeon who is your savior. I'm good. I'm good. I don't know. Why do we believe that being honest about our hurt makes us weak? I think that's the lie of the enemy to keep us from experiencing the surgery that will heal us. Listen, you're going to listen to this message and you're going to go, this is not deep at all. This is not complicated at all. Yeah, let me tell you why. Don't you hate when you sit down with a doctor and, and they're telling you about the procedure they're going to perform on you and they use all of these huge words that you can't even spell? Let me let you in a little secret. One of the reasons they're using those big words is they're charging you extra for every one of them they use. But God doesn't do that. He goes, hey, let me break this down and make it simple what I'm about to do. So here's, here's what you have to know about symptoms. You can lie all day about your symptoms. People can lie, symptoms cannot. If I've got them, I might lie about them, but my symptoms tell the truth of whether my heart is healed or hurting. Here's the first symptom we gotta talk about of a hurt heart, anger. Anger, one of the biggest symptoms of a hurt heart. Here's my definition of anger. Anger is the activity of overreacting to what is in front of you due to something deeper which is troubling you. Have you ever been in a situation where something kind of triggered you and it deserved a reaction like at this level and you took it to this level like that? You just snap, some people use the word explode. Well, well listen, if you do that from time to time, again, it doesn't make you bad. It just means you're hurt. It, it's a, a reflex, okay? It's also a reminder. When you get really angry and it just snaps like that and someone's standing in front of you and they become the target of your anger, you need to be reminded that's evidence they're not your problem. Something much deeper is. Here's another way to say it. Rarely is what you're yelling about the same thing as what you're most upset about. Anger is a symptom of a hurt heart, especially when you can't control it, when it looks like rage. Here's another symptom, isolation. This one breaks my heart as a pastor because the very people God wants to use to heal your hurt as a part of his process are the very people the devil gets you to stay the furthest away from. We isolate ourselves Isolation is simply preemptive rejection 
to prevent future relational pain. Here's what we say. I've been hurt before. I'm not letting somebody else do that to me again, so stay away from me. Now, you might be thinking, well, Preston, uh, I'm an introvert. You're making it sound like introversion is the same thing as isolation. No, no, I'm not. They're two different things. Introversion is a, a, a way of relating. Isolation is a strategy for rejecting. Isolation simply says, I don't want to be hurt. The last time I let somebody close, they hurt me, so I'm not going to let anybody close. Okay? Isolation can look like this, too. Shallow relationships. Because you might be going, well, I'm surrounded by people. You can still be completely isolated in a room filled with people. Take a look at your relationships. How deep are the deepest of your relationships? If all you have is shallow relationships, shallow relationships are just a form of emotional isolation. We cut them off. We keep them at what we deem to be the safest distance. Because when we let somebody pass that distance, they hurt us last time. And so everybody else loses out, even the people God wants to use as a part of his process for healing your heart. Isolation is a symptom. Are you preemptively rejecting others, thinking they are the problem? Can I just tell you, they are not the problem? Now, you might be thinking, well, that means I'm the problem. You're not the problem either if you're isolating. You know what the problem is? You're hurt. That's the problem. Listen, we make the mistake by thinking when we have these symptoms, it makes me bad. No, it just makes me hurt. It doesn't make me bad, and we punish ourselves when we have these symptoms, and that's what keeps us from going to God and letting him do something about it. Here's another one, inner vows. Inner vows are a symptom of a hurt heart. What's an inner vow sound like? It sounds like this. I'll never let somebody do that to me again. I'll never be in a relationship like that again. I'll never do that again. When my heart was completely devastated at 19, I said, I'll never date another girl in my life. In a year and a half, I was engaged, but my heart was saying, I hate all you women. I hate you all. None of you are going to have access to my heart. I didn't mean it because in my heart, I was like, baby, I love you. And I found my wife a year later. Listen, I was making an inner vow. Let me help you understand something. Inner vows are the handiwork of the devil getting you to over-respond to an inner wound. Because think about this. God doesn't do inner vows. God does covenantal commitment, not an inner vow. I'll never. And when we make an inner vow, here's basically what we're saying. I'll never do that again because I never want to feel like that again. So we cut ourselves off from blessings God wants to give us simply because we're too afraid it might lead to pain like last time. Inner vows. An inner vow almost always comes from being or feeling emotionally violated. Here's another one, and this is a big one in the church, bitterness. Bitterness is a symptom of a hurt heart. Now, unfortunately, the church is known for having a bunch of bitter people. 
Does it make them bad? Not at all. Just makes them hurt. Listen, I, I find this in the lobby all the time. Somebody will like try and bow up. I don't even know them, but they like start attacking me, trying to poke the bear. I'll be honest, when I was 21, 20 years ago, this bear would bite your head off. You poke me, I cut you, because I was so insecure and I didn't want to be hurt. My rule was, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you twice as badly. And isn't that how we operate when we're wounded, walking in the flesh, not in the spirit? Yeah. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you twice as badly. That's what I used to do. I used to think that person was bad because they were trying to hurt me. Here's what I've learned after 20 years of ministry. They're not bad, they're just hurt. They're not actually mad at me. They're not bitter towards me. They're just bitter because of something else. Here's what you have to understand about bitterness if this is something you struggle with. If you're bitter towards one person, don't be surprised when you become bitter towards all of them. And here's why. Bitterness doesn't understand boundaries. The spirit of bitterness is not bound by boundaries. Here's another way to say it. Because the Bible talks about the root of bitterness corrupting many. That's actually in point number three in your notes. But the root of bitterness, if you don't cut it off, will end up in every garden in your life. You know this is true. It starts out being bitter towards one. Someone who hurt you. And then... Little by little, it starts seeping into other relationships and you're bitter towards them. And then if you let it go for too long, what happens? You end up becoming bitter towards God. Why? Bitterness knows no boundaries. What does bitterness look like? Constant negativity. Constant. Somebody says, hey, have you seen so-and-so? Yeah. Can you believe what she's doing these days? I mean, you can't even say anything positive about anybody. It's not because you don't like the person. It's because you are bitter in your heart. And why are you bitter in your heart? Because you've been hurt. Every bitter person you know is simply walking with a wide open wound they're trying to hide. But let me let you in a little secret. If you really want to hide your hurt, hide your bitterness. Because the more bitter you are, the more hurt we know you are. Bitterness is a biggie. It's a big symptom of a heart. That's hurting. Here's another one, perfectionism. Perfectionism. Now, it's not always because of a hurt heart, but it definitely can be sometimes. Here's the lie every perfectionist believes when their heart is hurting, that I can minimize my pain if I maximize my performance. And this actually sets them up for even greater disappointment. If I just perform at a level I never have before, I'll never be hurt like I've been before. And then we try harder than we ever have and we do better than ever. And still, our heart gets hurt. And it causes us to resent the person even more. Because we thought we've done everything we should have done to keep it from happening. Listen, we live in a fallen world and hurt happens. Hurt happens, even when you're the best perfectionist of us all. And really, the, the spirit of perfectionism has more to do with the why behind you try so hard than trying so hard. Trying hard is great. Giving our best to the Lord is great. But if the why behind my try hard is to protect from being hurt, 
to earn the affection of someone else, which is the opposite of being hurt, it's not a good why. Perfectionism is, is a symptom. It can be a symptom of a hurting heart. Here's the last one, blame. Blame. You go around blaming everybody else all the time. I'll tell you right now, your heart's hurt. We, we use the phrase, hey, take the blame. But here's what we don't understand. Blame is not something you can own. Blame is something we lease. And it's cheaper and easier to lease their blame than it is to own your pain. So we just walk around blaming them. So how do you know you're a blamer? Here's one of the biggest ways. Whose name do you use most? The name of the person who inflicted your pain or the name of the one who died for all of your pain? I've sat in counseling appointments. I can't tell you how many over the last 20 years where somebody uses the name of the person who inflicted the pain upon them 25, 35, 50 times more than they use God's name. We blame. They're to blame. You know what the problem is with blame? If you keep blaming that person, eventually, you'll blame God. You'll cast their blame on him. And now it's not they're to blame. God, you're to blame. You let this happen. We blame. And if this is you, I just want you to write this down in your notes. If you dwell on what was done to you more than what Christ can do for you, you're hiding your hurt from your healer. When you spend more time talking about the one who hurt you than you do the one who can heal you, all you're doing is hiding your hurt. Okay, so these are just a few of the symptoms, all right? Not all of them. But now we have to talk about point number two. Healing is a process. Healing is a process. And I'm gonna try and make this as simple as possible. I'm not gonna use doctor's terms because when Jesus heals your heart, it's not complicated. It's just supernatural. So I'm gonna give you four steps that are a part of the process of healing. Here's step number one. Acknowledge your hurting. Acknowledge your hurting. Now, we hate this one. We hate this because it demands vulnerability, right? And we hate, if, if our heart is hurting, we hate being vulnerable because vulnerability feels like victimization. If I become too vulnerable, I'm gonna become a victim again. And I don't wanna do that, so I'm not gonna be vulnerable. And you know what I hate about vulnerability? That surgery always demands the most vulnerable of postures. You know what else does? Intimacy. It's impossible to have an intimate relationship without vulnerability. But when you've been hurt, when I've been hurt, and we haven't let Jesus heal our heart, what do we do? We refuse to get vulnerable. I'm not doing that. And we actually judge people who are vulnerable, who get up on a stage and cry about hurt. Man, he's just weak. No, he's vulnerable. They called Jesus weak when he hung up on that cross, but the greatest show of vulnerability in all of humanity was also the greatest show of strength in all of human history. 
We hate to be vulnerable, though. We have to acknowledge that we're hurting. And here's the big thing. Some of us think God can't handle our honesty. Can I just tell you, when it involves your hurting heart, God can handle every one of your hurting words. You know what's more disrespectful to God than being honest about your hurt? Being dishonest about it. Let me show you in Psalm 13, verse 1. Listen to what it sounds like to acknowledge your heart is hurting. And this is in the Bible. God inspired this. He made sure this was in here so that all of us knew he could handle when we speak to him out of hurt. Psalm 13, verse 1. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Now be honest. If we're to be truthful and think kind of with our religious minds, not our romantic mind, wouldn't we think that a, a God with all power, all strength, who holds the universe in his hand, wouldn't we think that if someone said to him, how long will you forget me, that he'd just slap him in the face? God lets it keep going. God, will you forget me forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. If I'm being honest, it kind of seems like you should be slapped. God says, no, no, I know how you feel. Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Please restore the sparkle to my eyes or I'm going to die. You know what the best news about being honest with God about your hurting heart is? One verse in the Bible, Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. When I'm honest and I tell him, I'm embarrassed to say it. My heart is broken right now. We walk with a God who sent his son in that moment to come even closer than we thought he could. He is close to the brokenhearted. Here's step two. After you acknowledge your hurting, let him take a look. Let him take a look. Now, I hate this part, honestly, okay? I hate letting him take a look. Think about why. When you go to your doctor, your dentist, your dermatologist, what is one of the first things they say to you? Let's have a look, right? When I went to the dermatologist the last time and he was kind of cracking a joke that I kind of resented that people with my skin complexion should never see the light of sun, and then what does he say next? Hey, let me have a look. Take your shirt off, let me have a look. I honestly, in the flesh, kind of wanted to go, why don't you take your shirt off and let me have a look? You're about to cut something off of me. Like, why don't you let me have a look? When the dentist says, open up, lean your head back, let me have a look. Why don't you lean back, open up your mouth, let me stick a drill down your throat and take a look? Why do we do that? Why do we kind of flinch when a doctor says, let me have a look? Because we know they're about to look and touch a place that is really painful. And so we equate looking with touching. 
but before God will ever touch what's hurting you. You have to let him look at it. Listen, what David says in Psalm 139, verse 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Here's what this means. He's saying, hey, I don't even trust my heart. I, I think I'm doing fine, but I may not be. I may be harboring some hurt I don't even know about. You search my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Here's what David is saying. God, I'm not just giving you lip service. I'm giving you heart access. Take a look at my heart. Tell me what's there. There may be an area that's so scabbed over from years ago that I don't even think exists anymore. God, search my heart. Take a look. And let me just tell you something about your Savior, the surgeon. The place Jesus most wants to touch involves the subject you least want to discuss. This is how he does it, and it annoys me all the time. Preston, I want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about that. He's saying, let me take a look. I don't want you to take a look. That's going to hurt. And why do I do that? Well, truthfully, because when he starts talking like a doctor, I start thinking about some of the really bad nurses I've had over the years with horrible bedside manner. Like the nurse that one time when I had a flesh-eating staph infection on my backside. I was doing a wedding and I couldn't even sit in the car. I had two pillows. Holly had to drive. And I do the rehearsal. And after the rehearsal, I had to go to the ER. And I walk in and this nurse, like, she bowed up on me. It was like she looked in my eyes and went, I have been waiting to punish a man like this. <laughs> she said, what's the problem? I said, well, I have a staph infection that is literally eating my flesh off of my backside. She goes, let me have a look. So I kind of, you know, pull down. She said, well, first things first, I'm going to give you a, a steroid to help. And before I knew it, and Holly's in the room there, before I knew it, I am not exaggerating a lick. My wife will tell you because she wanted to kill this nurse for whatever reason. Maybe she thought my flesh was really tough, but she just went, bam. And I said out loud, I may have said some other things I don't remember, honestly. <laughs> but I said, why did you do that like that? She didn't answer. I think she was chuckling, honestly. Then there was the nurse who, who when I was in the hospital for eight days after my appendectomy, uh, they, they had put my IV in. And she was walking around my hospital bed and tripped over the cord and ripped the needle out of my arm. So when someone in a position like that says, let me take a look, I want to slap them. <laughs> Why? Because I've been hurt. I've been hurt. I've let people in before have a look, and some of them have hurt me badly. Can I tell you something about your Savior, the surgeon? Matthew chapter 12, verse 20 says, he will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Do you know what that means? That when I have the guts to come to him and say, I am hurting, my heart is broken. He doesn't look at me and go, come on, shake it off. Get up, bro. It's not that bad. Why are you crying about this? Don't be weak. Some of us have heard words like that in moments of horrible hurt. And here's what the Bible says about Jesus. 
He doesn't snuff out a flickering candle. He puts his hands around it and says, I know the pain you're feeling because I put it on myself. I'm not going to snuff out this candle. I'm not going to even bruise an already bruised and weak reed. He can be trusted. Here's another way to say it. Our Savior has an unrivaled bedside manner. And that leads to step three. Let him heal it. Let him heal it. There's a phrase out there that I think is one of the most stupid things on the planet. Time heals all wounds. No, it doesn't. It actually makes them worse. The Bible doesn't say that God sent time to heal my broken heart. The Bible says that God sent Jesus to heal my broken heart. Listen, if time healed all wounds, Jesus would be out of one of his most important jobs. Time doesn't heal all wounds. That's the lie of the devil. Time heals all wounds. Of course he would say that and repeat it time and time again. Because then we'll waller in it. We'll never experience full healing if we just think time will heal the wound. No, it doesn't. It just scabs over and gets worse. Jesus heals all wounds. We have to let him heal it. And I'm not going to complicate this. I'm going to read one verse, Psalm 147, verse 3. He, no one else, he heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. Listen, if your heart is hurting, the wisest thing you can do is acknowledge it. Talk to God about it. Talk to somebody else about it. But then let him, let God have a look at the hurt. Let him dig around because you might be going, that's what hurt me. And it may be something so much further back in your past that you think you don't remember. But trust me, while your mind may have tried to forget it, your heart remembers every detail of what happened. Let God dig around and let him heal it. But here's step number four. Let him keep it. Once you let him heal it, let him keep it. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, this is speaking of the coming Messiah. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. He turned our backs, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. Jesus didn't just die for your sin. He didn't just put your sin upon himself. He took your sorrow too. Now think about what that means. Have you ever tried to go back to Jesus with some of the sin that he died for, that he put on himself? Have you ever gone back to him like, hey, can I have that back? Like, I'd like to carry this around, kind of show the photo album, my lowest moment in life to people. Like, can I, can I have that sin back? Of course you don't do that. Then why do we hold on to our sorrow? in the opposite way we hold on to our sin. Jesus died for both of them. He died for both of them. Listen, here's why we shouldn't carry around our sorrow. It's okay to be sad. But here's what I'm talking about. Sorrow is when you relive what happened over and over again. It's one thing to remember what was done. It's another thing to replay it so as to relive it. That is carrying sorrow, a spirit of heaviness. Jesus 
came to take and put upon himself. Once you let him heal it, resolve in your heart, I'm not gonna replay that movie anymore. And when the devil tries, I'm gonna grab the Bible, I'm gonna feed my mind and my heart and my soul with the word of God, not with the words that were spoken over me in that time of pain. About 22, 23 years ago, I fell in love with a girl and I was 100% convinced I was gonna marry this girl. And I've shared this story a couple of times in public. Um, and there are other moments where my heart was completely demolished, it felt like. But this is one that I can talk about that, that doesn't disrespect anybody or dishonor. I fell in love with this girl and went off to college out here and she was in her senior year of high school. And one day I got a, a text hey, congratulations on your engagement. And I was like, I'm not engaged, bro. He's like, oh man, I, I saw your girlfriend and that rock is awesome, way to go you. I said, no, it's probably a promise ring her dad gave her. He goes, no, this is an engagement ring. So I tried to call her, she wouldn't take my calls. Got on a plane, flew back to Dallas, made her look me in the eyes. We've been dating for several years. I had told the Lord, this is the one I'm gonna marry. And that one looked me in the eyes and said, I'm engaged. And she'd never even broken up with me. Obviously the shame that I felt, I mean, how could someone with dignity let something like that happen to themselves? How big of a fool do you have to be to say no, it was probably a promise ring? I stopped going to class in college that first semester. Didn't go to one more class the rest of that semester. Ended up with a 1.4 GPA that I'm totally proud of. I laid in bed every day in my dorm. And the only thing that felt better at the time was to watch TV shows from my childhood. I don't know why, it just made me feel safe. So I was watching Andy Griffith An ALF. And I'll just lay there and cry. I've never hurt so badly in my life. And I remember the day the Lord came into my dorm room and said, can I take a look? And I said, no, it hurts too bad. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want you to touch it. I just want to be left alone. And so sweetly and graciously and gently, he just kept coming after me. Please have a look. I hate that you're feeling this way. And finally, I didn't know what else to do. I let him touch my heart. And I can't explain to you what happened in my dorm room that day but it changed my entire life. I had been saved for years, but I had never been healed like this. He restored my soul. And I know there's some people in this room who know exactly how I feel because you're feeling that way right now. I'm not here to heal you. 
I'm just here to hold you by the hand and walk you into the operating room to lay down on the most gentle of tables with the greatest of surgeons. He can heal your heart, but you gotta let him. Thanks for joining us on Gateway.Live. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com.